0: is offered through Jim Salnier and Associates LLC, a registered investment advisor.
1: This is the Retirement and IRA show coming to you from beautiful Northern Colorado. Join us as Certified Financial Planner Jim Saunier, as well as Colorado State University finance instructor and certified financial planner Chris Stein. Teach you about IRAs, 401ks, annuities, social security, pension plans and estate planning in a fun and enjoyable show whether you are listening live in colorado or streaming from their website or itunes podcast jim and chris want you to know that they're available to help you plan for your retirement just visit their website at jimhelps.com that's jim h-e-l-p-s dot and click the meet the team button on the homepage. now here's jim and chris with today's show
2: Well, welcome to the Retirement and IRA Show Q&A edition for this week. Pretty busy week uh, for us on this end, but we've got a nice selection of questions for you today. Jim will be on momentarily to share those. Uh, My week's been a little hectic. I guess I'll share that my uh, daughter's getting ready to graduate with her professional science master's degree, which is a type of master's degree in... uh, Zoo Aquarium and animal shelter management from c s u tomorrow so we're all very proud of her and i'm sure she's f- sick and tired of school at this point, ready to be done <laughs> and start her life so uh uh we're we've been prepping for that, which has been keeping me busy and I know jim's got uh, fourteen pans in the fire or irons in the fire, i guess as it is not the pans see i'm 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 being infected by jim's mutation of of uh what are those metaphors? Um, but anyway.
3: I think they call them malapores or something like that. Malapores? Maybe, maybe,
2: yeah. They're sayings See, from, from olden times. When you have too many irons in the fire, that means things are a little but hectic. But I think and, you,
3: you, yeah. you mixed it up with uh, f- from the frying from pan, pan into, into the, the fire. fire. See,
2: that's what I said. It's My this, this gymism infection is spreading throughout the firm. <laughs> <laughs> so I admit that was – I fumbled that one.
3: Well, it's good to see that everybody at the firm is not only picking up on my approach to retirement planning. Oh, no. They're picking up on my approach to the English language. Oh,
2: yeah. That's a blessing for everyone.
3: Yes. See what you get to look forward to, folks. <laughs> you can you see Chris muffing up now. Yeah. So it's It's when you start saying we beat this horse to death.
2: Yeah. All is lost at that point.
3: Oh, it's like pulling teeth from a baby. Mm-hmm. When you start saying those, then then I'll know I'm rubbing off on you. My my job is done. Yeah. I can die in peace. Yeah. I passed and, on. <laughs> and you can
2: go off into the sunset touting your own horn.
3: <laughs> that's right. Touting, touting my own horn. All righty. But, uh, yes, this is a crazy, hectic week. I, I'd i say more so for you. My travels are done and I'm home. Um I mean, the the office is crazy busy, as it always is, uh, but um, I think you, with the graduation and everything, yeah, it's got to be pretty hectic for you until that's all taken care of, but uh, today, folks, we've got several questions we're going to get to. I was going to lead with two Social Security questions, and um, from there, we'll get into some regular generic questions, I guess you could say, or uh, not necessarily. Yeah, I'd say generic in the sense that they cover all different topics, not just social security. Um, we'll begin, Chris, with a question from. Whoa! I'll give you a hint. This person yeah. Friday, you're going to get this one. I, I'm going to I'm going to go out and predict you will guess this one, yeah. uh, because if you, everybody knows this, at least I think most people know this. Um, their state animal is the grizzly bear and the only reason i know this is it's on their flag it's on their state flag Um, oh but there's there's well that uh,
2: now after you said the second part i think i know what you're talking about but the the first part i was thinking a completely different state because
3: you'd have thought montana i bet
2: the state no alaska that's where all the grizzly bears are
3: well montana has grizzly bears too not like Alaska, alaska
2: though Oh,
3: true, true. Yeah, no, Alaska, there's, I didn't even uh, know what the hell Alaska's I, flag looks like. It must have a big snowflake on it or
2: something. Yeah, but I don't, I doubt there's a grizzly bear alive in the state of California, which is who has the grizzly bear on their flag.
3: I never thought of it that way. The only reason, I, I just knew for some reason that California yeah. had the grizzly bear on their flag. Yeah, I'm I, sure. Uh, so
2: so I'm when sure. you said that, I immediately went to California. So I'm assuming that's the state.
3: Yeah, it is. California is the state. So this person is um, from California. Yeah,
2: but neither Colorado doesn't have grizzly bears, and I don't think California does either. So I guess that's from the bygone era that they put that on their flag. But maybe I'm wrong. Maybe there are grizzlies outside of a zoo environment in California.
3: Well, there's definitely grizzlies just to the north of us in Wyoming, not too far. Yeah,
2: but there hasn't been a grizzly sighting in Colorado in decades.
3: As long as it's not a grizzly sighting when yours truly is out hiking. Because <laughs> <Yeah>. uh, <laughs> I don't want to mess with that.
2: Or even a black Our, bear with, its, with her cubs. That's bad enough.
3: <laughs> yes. Yeah. Oh, that's, that scares me a lot. For the, those yeah. of you who are hikers or spend any time out west or any time in the outdoors, you know it, it is not cute when you see a cub. Yeah. You stop panicking yeah. if Danger. you see a cub. Because if that silly little thing starts squawking... You're in trouble. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that's my biggest dread is that I'm going to see a cub someday on the trail. Um, but so far, so good. Hopefully, I didn't just jinx myself. All righty, right. Let's get to some questions. This okay. is from a Californian. We will call her Georgette. Mm-hmm. Okay. She says, hi, Jim, Chris, and the crew. I am confused after listening to your recent podcast on March 4th. Well, let me pause there. I'm often confused when I listen to a podcast, too. So she's in good company. I get confused sometimes. I thought that it was no longer possible to collect spousal benefits following a divorce after more than 10 years of marriage if you were born after January 2nd, 1954. Well, that all confused me. I have no idea what she's talking about. Do you need me to repeat that sentence? There's a lot of moving parts. To no, that. I think I've, so, I've got, got where it. she's going so far. Okay. Yeah. I checked the Social Security website, and it seems I misunderstood. And it's actually my divorced spouse that needs to be born prior to January 2nd, 1954. I was born in October of 1954. He was born in June of 52. Anyway, I retired in 2016 and did not pursue getting spousal benefits since I believed I wasn't eligible. I've been postponing filing for my own benefits until I reach age 70, which will be next year. Have I been leaving money on the table all this time? And then she signs her name, but again, we will call her Georgette. I have no idea what 1954 has to do with any of this, so maybe you can. That's the her.
2: yeah. She's mixing several things together, which is easy to do with Social Security because the rules and and uh, um, you know regulations surrounding Social Security are quite confusing. Um, the I'm doing a little calculator math here because there's a couple ways. I probably need to explain what's going on here. Um, So let me back up and first state, nothing has changed with any rules about being able to file spousal benefits on your divorced spouse's record as long as you've been married for at least 10 years, as long as you meet the other basic qualifications, which is you are at least 62 years old, And they are at least 62 years old and either have claimed benefits themselves or you've been divorced for at least two years. And then they waive that requirement that 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 your ex-spouse has to have claimed their own benefit before you claim your spousal benefit. So essentially think of it this way, that after you've been married for 10 years, Social Security uh, treats your ability to claim spousal benefits as if you were still married Essentially, there's there's even one slight advantage to being divorced in that your ex doesn't have to have claimed benefits for you to uh, claim a spousal benefit, where if you were still married, they have to have claimed before you can get it. So so for a divorced spouse, as long as you were married for more than 10 years, the rules for spousal benefits are as good in every case and even better in that one rule than if you were still married. So nothing has changed, nothing about 1954, none of that. What the rule is regarding the January 2nd of 1954 cutoff is your ability, whether you are married or not, or you were divorced after being married for 10 years, in order to file what's called a restricted application, which is filing for only a spousal benefit while letting your own benefit continue to grow in the background so that you can later claim it at its highest amount, maybe at 70, the only people who can still do that and could do that after they uh, passed the, the the law in, I think it was 2015 or 2016, um, that changed this rule Uh, Are people, they grandfathered in people to be able to file these restricted applications as long as you were born before January 2nd of 1954. But that doesn't, it's not affecting your ability to just claim spousal or not. It's the restricted application for those spousal benefits that's restricted, which has nothing to do with her ex if she's the one trying to claim a spousal, it has all to, everything to do with her birthday. And since she was born in October of 1954, she was not grandfathered in to this. And um, back in, 19, in 2016, when she retired, she would have been only 62 years old and too young to file a restricted application because the only time you could file a restricted application is once you reach your own full retirement age. So she hasn't... The good news is I don't have bad news for her uh, about leaving money on the table and, gee, you should have done this, should have done that. In her case, I don't believe she ever would have had the opportunity to file a restricted application for spousal benefits. Um because she's falling under the deemed filing rule uh, which applies to everyone uh, that was born january 2nd of 1954 or after Uh, and deemed filing simply means when you go in to claim a benefit they assume you're claiming your own they force you to claim your own before claiming a spousal benefit and that rule uh, has always applied to people under their full retirement age but then there was a door opened for people when they reached full retirement age to file a restricted application that was taken away in the, in the the name of the bill escapes me. I think it was one of the omnibus bills in two thousand and fifteen I think went into effect two thousand and sixteen was right about that time frame. They essentially said the deeming rule we 've been using for people under their full retirement age we 're going to apply that at all times, but if you were born before January second of one thousand nine hundred and fifty four you can still play under the old rules. Those people, of course, less than one year from today when we are recording this, on January 2nd of 2024, the youngest person to be grandfathered in will have reached 70. And at that point, no reason will exist to ever file a restricted application. And this rule then will become you know in in sunset essentially it's gone uh the no no further grandfathering at that point so we're close to the end of this window if you are say 69 this year and um your spouse has claimed you're waiting to claim your own at 70 you are leaving money on the table if you aren't filing a restricted application to claim a spousal benefit while your own grows in the background uh, that you can switch to at 70 so if, if I know there's probably not many of you out there that fit this very narrow grandfathering um, group, but if you are um, turning 70 later this year in 2023 and your spouse has claimed Social Security and you are waiting to claim your own until 70, you're leaving money on the table if you're not, claim- if you're not receiving a spousal benefit at this time. So um, just wanted to put that out there. But I think the the only bad news with her, the the listener's email that she sent in, is she was confusing a whole bunch of rules together. Um, but she's not, she hasn't been leaving money on the table. She can continue on with her. Sounds like her intent was to claim uh, her own at 70, which means she's been going without a benefit this whole time, getting, letting those delayed retirement credits accrue. And um, no, I don't believe you've been leaving money on the table so far. So hopefully that kind of clarified all the the pieces that were brought up in this particular email because there were, you know, several components here mixed together.
3: I think you did a good job clearing it all up for you. You certainly cleared it up for me on why she was mentioning uh, 54.
2: Yeah.
3: Okay. Let's get to another social security question. Let's keep the ball a rolling. Mm-hmm. Let me see if they gave me a hint to share with you. Oh, they did. Okay. okay. Oh, you're going to get this one too because oh, nice. I think I think you have this dog.
2: That'll improve my mood for the day. Get two for two. <laughs>
3: um, don't you? You have a puppy that that brings into the office every now and then. Is it a? It's it a bulldog, right? Uh,
2: there, she brings in a French bulldog
3: a french bulldog. We also okay. have
2: right now a foster english bulldog named Sheldon who's been an extended stay foster because he has four congenital heart defects that he has to he had to get a little older and bigger before they would operate on him at the CSU Veterinary Hospital which is scheduled for about 2 weeks from today. So those of you I brought up Sheldon before if you're curious I'll I'll let everyone know and I'm sure he could use your Thoughts and prayers, because I don't think the his chances of making it through this surgery are tremendous. Oh, uh, really? But it's something that will continue to deteriorate for him as he ages, and will it has to be addressed because it's going to eventually kill him if it's not fixed. So, uh, but it's a very complex case with four separate heart defects simultaneously. So, anyway, not to bum everybody out. But uh, yeah, Sheldon is an English bulldog uh, who plays well, you may, pretty well with my that, French bulldog. But uh, yeah, but he hasn't been okay. into the office yet.
3: Well, you should be able to get this. Even uh, th- This is a pretty easy hint, but because you are a bulldog uh, person, uh, I think you will get this even more. Okay. I would have even gotten it uh, mm-hmm. just by the football hint. So here's the hint my state's university has an English bulldog as mascots and was among one of the loyalist States during the revolution. He should have just led with that hint. I should have just led with that hint first. Cause that one might've got you, which, which surprised me when he wrote that I didn't realize this state was a loyalist state during the revolution hmm. because some battles of the revolutionary war were fought down there. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyways
2: well, Mascot of the, is the
3: English Bulldog and yeah. they were a loyalist state during the revolution.
2: Well the Bulldog mascot I think it has to be Georgia. Yeah. So that one is but I don't I wouldn't have gotten it from the second hint alone.
3: Yeah, I wouldn't have have gotten it from that revolution hint. And and I'm a history buff, but that was news to me as well. (laughs) And again, folks, I appreciate these little hints coming in. It makes it cute and fun, gives you guys something else to do. But everyone know Chris and I are not actually vetting these oh, true. Uh, We're just trusting what they say. Now, I've, you know, so,
2: there are bull, the bulldog is the mascot, so that one is correct. But.
3: Right. But uh, I have no idea if Georgia actually was a loyalist state during the Revolution or not. But uh, we don't vet the hints. We just read them. Okay, this is so scurdy question. Uh, let's see. First of all, thank you for the podcast. It is both informative and entertaining. I drive about one hour to see my daughter each week and can listen to an EDU show on the way to see her hmm. and the Q&A show on the way home. Yeah. You deliver the perfect amount of content for me. Well, that's good, Excellent. listener. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. My mom recently passed. And for that, Chris and I extend our yeah. sympathies to you. My mom recently passed, and I'm in the executioner of her... Uh, the ex. Wow, that <laughs> Not the executioner of her estate, the executor of her estate. Executioner, where did that come from? I am the executor. Yeah, that about
2: went in a really odd direction.
3: Well, I'm reading, and it just, my head, my mind saw executioner, but it clearly says executor. Mm -hmm. I am the executor of her estate. She passed on January 8th and received Social Security payment on January 11th and February 8th. I expected the February payment to be withdrawn and left the money in the account so the Social Security Administration can do that. Social Security has now withdrawn both January and February. I thought the payment in January was the money she earned in December, so they would only withdraw for months paid after her death. Should I challenge that withdrawal? of the January payment. Mm. Mm. Thank you, and best regards. Gives his full name, but we're going to call him George.
2: Um, Yes, you should challenge the withdrawal of that January payment. So this all stems from the fact that Social Security benefits are paid one month in arrears. So the January payment that was received was actually for benefits in December, and to um, be owed a December benefit, you must be alive the entire month, which she was. She didn't pass until January 8th. So she was owed that payment that was deposited in her account on January 11th. Uh, the 11th, uh, she, just um, to remind everyone, it's a one month in arrears, but also they pay it each Wednesday based on your when your birthday was during the month that you were born. And she must have been born in the first 10 days of the month because her pay date was the second Wednesday of the month. They pay on the second, third, and fourth Wednesdays of each month, and they break it up and, and essentially cut every month into into thirds. And if you were born in the first third of the month, you get it that, that second of the Wednesday, you were born in the second third of the month, you get it the third Thursday, and I'm sorry, third Wednesday, and then you'll get it the uh, fourth Wednesday of the month if you were born in the last third of the month in which you were born. The first Wednesday of the month is um, there are payments that go out, but usually under the SSI program and other payments that they make not for just straight up retirement benefits. Although if you get other benefits, there are cases where people are getting their retirement benefits. Paid the first Wednesday of the month, we ran into that, and that was pointed out to us actually by a listener who experienced that, and it was all stemming from the fact that other benefits that were being paid on to the household were being paid on that first Wednesday, so they grouped them together in some way. And I don't know all the rules; I just know it can happen. Um, but generally, it's the second, third, or fourth. So, she January 11th was the second Wednesday of the month of January 2023 which means she was born in the first third of the month in which she was born. Um, but she was owed that payment, uh, but she did not live all the way through January. So the payment that came in on February 8th, which was the second Wednesday of February, um, they do claw that back, and that's because she was not owed a benefit for January, and they just weren't notified in time to stop it, Um and and so no harm, no foul. That 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 happens all the time. It uh, takes a little bit um, for Social Security to be notified and for their systems to update, and then to halt future payments. And oftentimes they will make an extra payment or sometimes two before uh, they catch it. And they will drag those back. They'll they'll take they'll claw those back from the account that they deposit those in. That's part of the agreement for them making those electronic deposits for you. But. In what you've described, I see no reason why she would um, not have earned the December payment that was made on January 11th unless, uh, you know, I think it's a mistake either way. Most likely mistake is somehow they have the wrong um, day of death um, in in their system or something, Um, or it could be just a random glitch. But I think if you contact them, they will redeposit that. Uh, might take a little time for that to happen. The The wheels of justice in the social security system move rather slowly, but they should uh, redeposit that unless there's some other element to this story that um, um, we didn't get in your email. So good to pick up on that. Don't just accept it. Uh, they do make mistakes, and it sounds to me like they did make a mistake by clawing back that deposit that went in for you in, uh, in for your mother in January.
3: Oh, I thought I was muted, so I was trying to unmute, and all this oh, time I wasn't you, muted. Then you
2: remuted yourself? Yeah.
3: I, I paused for no reason.
2: <laughs> it's okay.
3: Okay, perfect. All righty. So we're going to get into some other questions, folks. We've got a lot of questions uh, pertaining to Secure Act 2. I'm, I'm not going to get to all of those questions, but there's a couple that I will get to. And of course, we're going to have our new question uh, of the week. So with that said, do you want to do the new question of the week first, Chris, or the secure act 2 questions first? Mm,
2: let's do the new question of the week, so that's normally what we do after the social security.
3: Just to All be right. consistent. All right. We we got actually we got two folks, two two good new questions of the week. Uh, I'll do one and then I'll try to get the two secure questions done, and if we have time, the third one is is real short and these the second new question of the week is is actually quite easy. Okay, uh, let me see if they... Oh, he did give a hint. All right. I don't think you're going to get this one.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: You're two for two. I do not think you're going to go three for three on this one. Uh, he begins, Hi, Jim. Just totally blew you off. Hi, Jim. I am a frequent listener to the podcast. I listen while running as another exerciser. Mm-hmm. I am from the state of... And I'm not going to read it. And my hint for Chris is that our state was the first to cultivate grapes and, ironically, one of the first to prohibit alcohol in 1907. And my second hint for Chris is we're also known as the muscadine grape and produce the most muscadine wine. I never even heard of muscadine mm. wine of you.
2: No. Don't Google. I'm not. I'm. Hmm. The I originally thought New cultivate- York, but I think it's. I think it's not. I think it's probably. Um, hmm. New Hampshire.
3: Georgia. What? There's another Bulldog. Yes, Georgia.
2: <laughs> that's crazy.
3: Oh, it's crazy. We got two emails from Georgia in the but, same time, but uh, yeah, two totally different one. hits. Yeah. yeah, that's what I said. I knew you were going to get this one. No, no. Um, I never even heard of muscadine grapes. I don't, I don't drink wine. I hate wine. I, I'm just one of those weird people that never developed a taste for wine. So I have no idea what muscadine wine is. Mm. Have you
2: ever no, had No, I don't know. No, I've never had it.
3: Okay. Alrighty. So this is a unique question. And uh, it it covers a few different little areas, folks. So it begins in 2022. uh, Excuse me. Yeah, 2022. I had it right. In 2022, I used Vanguard to manage a brokerage account and two two Roth IRA accounts that I had. They rebalanced and did other training, trading, in 2022. So I received a 1099 that clearly shows losses in my brokerage account. Mm -hmm. Yet there were purchases within my Roth IRAs of the same funds within 30 days. But Vanguard didn't indicate the sales Mm -hmm. were a wash sale. IRS rules. I had to do all the comparison and calculations myself. Again, they were managing all of my accounts, so I'm surprised they didn't account for the wash sale. In your experience, is this common? (sighs) Common? I'd say yes, surprisingly, that you can see this. I'm guessing what happened, Chris, is he he didn't indicate. He does say, and I kind of skipped over that part, I use Vanguard as a Mm robo-advisor to manage my brokerage accounts, which means, folks, a lot of it is just being automated with computers and not an actual person. And I'm just guessing that he was on some sort of automatic rebalancing and his accounts. I I have no idea. He didn't provide any data on the shares the, 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 what was being sold, what was being bought, but I'm guessing it was done all automatically or automated and, uh, Vanguard missed it because he's right. Vanguard is supposed to pick up on if it's a wash sale or not. Is it common? I think it is nowadays with everything being automated. Um, so it is possible that this was missed by van gogh but he obviously picked up on it so that was his first question it really wasn't a question he's just asking is it common i i think it is but i have no evidence uh to the contrary uh, or no evidence supporting that i think it's it's probably fairly common do you have any thoughts on that
2: i don't i don't know how common it is i i don't hear about it m- much so Maybe people aren't noticing it when it happens, uh, so they don't bring it up a whole lot. That's my guess. So, I mean, it and, is true that if you if you sell a, a security for a loss in a non-retirement account, but buy the same one in your IRA, the IRS has come out and stated that's a wash sale. So, um, him picking it up is good i'm I am a little surprised an entity like Vanguard at this time it's not like this is a new rule um It's been around for a long time. they clarified this long ago, so um maybe we don't hear about it because people aren't watching for it because they assume Vanguard is right
3: exactly and it's not so just Vanguard,
2: uh- I'm sure it's this I'm sure with all the robo platforms, this is probably happening occasionally everywhere.
3: And all is not lost, folks. It's just he, he adds it to the basis. He's not going to – he eventually will will be able to benefit from it. He just doesn't get it right away. He's picked up on it, and I assume he's tracking it is what he's saying. And then he shares. He just wants everyone to know. He said taxpayers could be in big trouble if they just rely on the 1099 at face value. And I think that's a little bit of good advice that he's sharing, folks. Check out your ten ninety nine, especially you Vanguardians. There's tons of you out there. Uh, Check out your 1099 and make sure nothing does fall victim to the wash sale rule. The custodians are supposed to pick up on it, but clearly they don't all the time. Uh, And then it's also, will the IRS pick up on it? Uh, Who knows? They're not looking at your holdings. You would have to be involved in an audit. And then they would have to be going through every single buy and sell that you made. And those types of audits and that type of analysis is few and far between. But if you want to follow the rules to the letter like this gentleman did, he picked up on it, and I'm sure he's going to adjust it with the basis in his brokerage account. Okay, then it gets a little more interesting. He said, also in 2022, I made an excess contribution to the Roth IRA. But I also moved this IRA from Vanguard to Fidelity. I don't know if he did it because of what Fidelity did on the 1099, but and all you Vanguardians, you're probably cringing now. Yes, he left Vanguard. So he made an excess contribution to his Roth in 2022. And then at some point, he moved it to Fidelity. So he continues. I had to engage both firms to help me calculate and remove the excess and its associated gain. Let me pause there. Whenever you make an excess contribution to an IRA, you have until when, Chris, to fix it?
2: October 15th of the year following the excess contribution.
3: Exactly. So you have quite a bit of time, especially if you made the excess contribution on January 1st. You have 22 months practically to fix it. Plenty of time to fix an excess contribution. But the IRS says you have to remove the amount of the excess contribution plus any gain minus any losses. If your contribution was made to just, say, a brand new IRA, or in his case, Roth IRA, no other money in it, It's a fairly easy calculation, is it not, Chris?
2: I think so. Yeah.
3: To figure out the gain and loss associated with a contribution, if it's the only money in that Roth, Mm -hmm. you just look at the balance of the Roth. Yeah, super easy. It doesn't get any easier than that. The problem is if there's other monies in there. The IRS doesn't let you or doesn't expect you To actually track those dollars and what you purchased with those dollars. You kind of have to like cream going into coffee. It spreads throughout and you kind of have to look at the entire Roth in its entirety. I don't know if that's double redundant there. But you're going to look at the entire Roth and all the money in it. And it's kind of pro amongst there's a calculation in publication 590. I don't know if it's in 590A or B, that walks you through. It's not that hard to do. It walks you through how to figure it out. But you need account balances at certain times. And I think that's what he's running into as I continue to read on. You need account balances on the day the, the day before the day you made the excess contribution. Um, I think the day of the day you fix it, it's, I I can't remember the the calculation in my head, but this, in defense of the IRS, their worksheet kind of walks you through it pretty easy. A lot of custodians will also do this for you. So he continues, I checked Vanguard's calculation and our results of mine and Vanguard's were very close. But Fidelity, their calculation was extremely different. I asked both Vanguard and Fidelity to actually give me their calculations, and they both declined. I'm quite certain I followed the IRS's formula in notice 2000-39. That's the notice folks back in 2000 that um, created this calculation. But when you look at publication 590 uh, for removing excess contributions, the calculation is in there. And I would go with publication 590 because that's updated every year. So it's going to have the newest rules and everything in it rather than referencing something from 2000. But I don't, to the best of my knowledge, Chris, I don't think they actually changed the calculation any. Again, what is your experience Do you and your clients have to deal with custodians and their accuracy and what they may or may not disclose? That's where a lot of people don't understand, Chris, what custodians are responsible to do and what they're not responsible to do. And everything, folks, comes down to you, not really what the custodian figures And I think the reason Fidelity's, as he put it, is very different, they don't have the balance of the account the day before the excess, I think it's the day before you need, that the day before the excess contribution was made. So I don't even know how Fidelity could even come close to figuring out the gain and the loss associated with the excess. I don't see how they could have done it. But I would, if I were him, he's saying his calculation is close to Vanguard's, not exact, but close. And I assume it's because they have the correct data, the the beginning balance that they need. But it's not going to come down to, listeners, what the custodian tells you. It's going to come down to what you calculate on the IRS's worksheet. So I would rely on that and not even rely on the custodian. Mm -hmm. You can ask the custodian, I think, Chris, just to, to check your numbers. But if you are especially changing custodians in the middle of this and you expect your numbers and both custodian numbers to match, it's not going to. But ultimately, as the taxpayer, you are responsible. That's why the IRS provides the worksheet just follow the instructions in the worksheet it's especially for people listening to this podcast it's not rocket science you guys will definitely be able to figure it out and if i were him i would go by what his calculation shows not what vanguard shows and not what fidelity what says you
2: i agree for those exact reasons you've got uh, and it's ultimately on you for doing it they're doing a lot of these things the custodians will kind of do as a as a courtesy to give you guidance, but ultimately it's on you to to do it correctly, so I would not just take their word for it, especially any year that you've changed custodians, things are going to be messy. I uh, just kind of put it out there <laughs> it's just um, you know having those flows and the kind of the 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 break in the history and all that kind of stuff uh, not saying you shouldn't do it if you're interested if there's some reason why you're changing custodians it makes sense go ahead and do it but just know that a few of these things might be a little rough uh and it's ultimately on you to to kind of clean it up but there there are pretty understandable steps on the worksheet i think just be very careful and, and you know then guess what there's tax professionals out there so if you struggle with it just uh get a hold of your tax professional maybe somebody doing your taxes or or reach out to somebody that uh We'll provide some guidance on the taxes uh, directly. You can at times actually call call the IRS and ask them questions. Now, I don't know how helpful they'll be on this particular worksheet. They might just say, "Just follow this follow the steps." But um, yeah, it's uh, they're not. They're, if you read it carefully and take it step by step and don't assume where they're going with something, just follow it very carefully, step by step. It's fine.
3: Yeah, personally, in our practice, we do the calculation. We don't rely on the custodians, Yeah. but that's just us. Um, So he continues. Final part. Fidelity and I disagree on their calculation. So I am going to file IRS Form 4852 to correct the 1099 that I know I'm going to receive from them next year. I don't know on the 1099, folks. I got to pause there. I'm not the tax expert. I don't know on a 1099 if that's even included on this when you're removing an excess contribution. I don't think the calculation is on there. I could be totally wrong. And that Fidelity is going to list if there's a gain or a loss. But I don't think it's on the 1099, folks, because there could be a loss associated with this as well. Let's say you contributed... Uh, seven thousand dollars too much. You couldn't. You couldn't contribute. You made way too much. You couldn't contribute to the Roth. You might be in a situation where you're removing three and a half thousand dollars because your Roth tanked mm-hmm. in the twenty-two months you have to correct it. I'm just making this mm-hmm. up.
2: Yeah.
3: <clears throat> they're, they're and there'll very, be no ten ninety
2: nine on that.
3: So I don't know if that. Gain calculation is even going to be on the 1099. I could be totally wrong on that. Do not rely on this. We don't have our tax experts on the podcast right now. But for the life of me, I don't think it's on there. But even if it is, he continues. As part of filing Form 4852, and that form, folks, is what you use if you want a 1099 corrected. The IRS requires me to contact the custodian to try to resolve this issue. And I've done that. But Fidelity won't reply to me. And I don't think they're going to. No surprise there. Let me pause there. I don't think you're going to get them to reply either because I don't think it applies here. I could be totally wrong. You have to do a calculation and report on your taxes what the gain is. If the if the Custodian, if it was relying upon the custodian, that I think that's what publication 590 would say. There's no need to even give the formula, in my opinion. I don't know. Do it yourself and rely on that and don't try to get fidelity to start acknowledging that this number that they're they're coming up with is wrong. So he concludes this. He just wants to know our opinion. So since I have my calculations, my statements. And I'm fully prepared, prepared for an eventual document audit, what you and I call letter audit, where they're going to send them a letter and say, hey, what's going on here? Let's see, document audit that will take place. I think I'm all set. Is my experience common? I don't know. I'm not going to go out there and say that this is common. But what I do want to let you know, listener, is go with your calculations. I don't think it's listed on the ten ninety nine. But even if it is, I don't think and I don't think it is. You're not gonna probably get Fidelity to be able to fix something before they even send it out when you're audited if you get a letter audit it's going to be because something's not matching up Mm -hmm. on this whole thing that you're doing if you get a letter audit and that's a big if yeah you by your own admission you said you're fully prepared you have the documents you have the calculations and you have the statements don't worry about it right state your case if you get a letter audit Don't overthink this. Don't overanalyze it. Don't jump out of bed at two in the morning like we had a recent listener do. Don't overthink it. You have everything you need. He continues, um, and he explains why he left Vanguard. So I want to read that because we have tons of Vanguardians. He says, as an aside, I'm a complete and total do-it-yourselfer. I consolidated my accounts at Fidelity merely because I like their website better. But I do feel Fidelity and Vanguard are great custodians. So there you go, Vanguardians, if you're wondering why he he left Vanguard. He likes Fidelity's website. What I'm trying to point out, he's a do-it-yourselfer. He has a good handle on this. I think he's over-analyzing this. He's making a, kind of a mountain out of a little molehill here. Just do the corrective distribution, remove the excess contribution, do the calculation yourself when it comes time to report it, pay any taxes on any gains that you may have and it's going to be minimal in light of what the market's been doing, and just save all your documents for at least three years and don't worry if you get a letter of audit on it. Don't overanalyze this. That's my thought. Anything yeah. else you want to add? No,
2: just hang on to those documents. Like you said. Don't don't lose those. You never know when you're gonna get that. Well you'll know after what they have they'll have three years to to take a look at this, generally. So uh
3: I'm not sure what it is. It's either going to be three or six years.
2: Yeah. So hang on to your you should have a, a place to store stuff <laughs> for a little bit. So just hang on to it for a while till you know for sure it's it's done. And uh if they ask for it, well, show Matt. it. You should be fine.
3: Nowadays, Chris, with digital storage, you can save them forever. I just, I I know we as a firm, we save everything forever. But you can do the same thing now with digital storage. All those calculations and everything you said, all those sheets, scan them into a computer. Right. If you have an iPad, it has a cute little scan feature in the notes section. Scan them all in there. If not, just take photos and save the photos. But nowadays with digital, just save it all. It's no big deal. Alrighty, we got a couple of uh, questions in on Secure Act two. I'm going to get to two. It's actually three of them, but two of them are identical. So we're going to kill three birds uh, with two stones. Okay, let's do this one first. It says, "Hi Jim and oh, does he give a state? No, no state. I don't even know what state he's in. He doesn't reckon, uh, it doesn't recognize just at all." Okay. Hi, Jim and Chris. Thank you for all your insight over the past year. This question is to help my special needs child, age 17. My son will likely never be able to earn compensation income. He has a 529 account with $175,000 in it. We have been moving the maximum amount from the 529 into his ABLE account, Since that was permitted, I'll pause there, folks. An ABLE account, I forget what the acronym stands for. Um, Why don't you Google that real quick? It it has to do with disabled people. Uh, We're not going to get into what an ABLE account is, folks, but it is a special account for disabled individuals that allows their family to save money for their need and enables, and I think that's where this kind of came from, enables the disabled person to take care of, to one degree or another, some of their own finances, to give them a sense of independence, give them a sense that they're accomplishing things. So I I was a really big fan of ABLEs when they Mm -hmm. came out.
2: Yeah, and it stands for Achieving a Better Life Experience.
3: Okay, so they're trying to enable you with ABLE accounts. Okay, we are wondering if we can roll over money from his 529 into a Roth. Under secure two. But can we do this in the absence of any earned income? It's probably wishful thinking, but I haven't seen whether the ability to convert from the 529 to a Roth will require our son to have earned income. I'm going to just stop there. He, he wrote some other things, but it's not germane to the main question. Mm-hmm. We are going to get into this in much deeper detail on upcoming EDUs as I continue to work my way through my Ed Slot notes. But I wanted to address this question now because I said we we're going to try to dedicate some Q&A show questions to Secure Act 2. And unfortunately, listener, the th- this is probably the Part of Secure 2, besides raising the RMD age to 73 and then eventually uh, 75, the ability to move from a 529 to a Roth has gotten the most press next mm-hmm. to the increased RMD age. Yeah. I think you'll agree. I agree. It is, it is the most misunderstood. Personally, I think it's much ado about nothing if you understand what it actually allows But we'll get into that on a future EDU show, maybe even next week. I'm not sure. But to answer his question, the receiving beneficiary must have earned income and must have enough earned income to have made a contribution. So if they do, you can move money from the 529 to a Roth for them, tax-free, move it in there for them. But it is part of the contribution amount. Yeah. So and
2: similar it, to when you can make the once-in-a-lifetime seeding of your HSA account from your IRA as well, you have to qualify to be able to make the HSA contribution in order to do that. Same thing here. You have to qualify to make a Roth IRA contribution in order to fund it from the 529.
3: Exactly. So. Unfortunately, folks, unless they, in future legislation, address disabled individuals, which they they have, Secure 2 has uh, created uh, a new type of uh, trust that we'll get into. I don't really want to say it. That's a bad way of putting in a new type of trust. But a new distribution rule when a disabled individual has a trust named as beneficiary of an IRA. Uh, And we're going to cover this, uh, I forget what the acronym is, I think it's A-M-B-T. Google that real quick, see if I'm right, A-M-B-T. And it should pop up something, uh, unless I have the acronym wrong. So my point is, under Secure 2, they did a special carve-out for disabled people who are beneficiaries of trusts, and those trusts are named as beneficiaries of IRAs. Only disabled people get this special treatment. So perhaps perhaps Congress will address this very issue that this person is talking yeah. about. The disabled individual cannot work. That's why they're they're disabled. But they are gonna have to quote unquote retire someday in the future. They are going to need assets for retirement. And if they have extra assets in a five twenty nine, if they've maxed out their their, their schooling, Why not allow them to move that to a Roth IRA and exempt them from the compensation rule? I'm hoping future Congresses address this, but right now they haven't. But it gives me hope when they made a special carve-out for trusts named as IRA beneficiaries. Was I right in the acronym AMBT? Yeah, it's
2: Applicable Multi-Beneficiary Trust, AMBT. They were trying to provide special treatment for disabled and chronically ill for their protection. So it's a new type of trust that was created at the last minute in the SECURE Act.
3: And we will get to that. Absolutely, folks. There's a lot of good things coming up. But you'll see when we start talking about it, Chris, it's a special carve-out that exempts their trust from certain rules that everyone else has to follow. And I would have no problem with a special carve out here to help disabled people. Yeah. As my, my suggestion, listener, especially if you belong to any organization, start encouraging members of that organization or other people you know with disabled children to petition Congress. Start writing to your senators and to your, your congresspeople and your representatives and get them to make this change, give a carve-out to allow the movement from 529 to a Roth for disabled individuals, even if they have no earned income. Okay. The next one is two questions. It's probably about the fourth time we've been asked this. My answer is going to be the same, but I figure I will mention it. Um, Oh, first one came from, couldn't call him George, but you got another question. I think you're going to get this one. Hmm. I think you will. You feeling lucky, punk, as they say? (laughs) Here is my hint from the state I'm in for Chris. I am from the Constitution State.
2: Pennsylvania, no Connecticut,
3: <laughs> I knew that because I grew up in New England, yeah, but that's a good guess because Pennsylvania yeah,
2: there's a lot of action there is,
3: yeah they I think that's where they wrote the Constitution I think so. the,
2: yeah, the constitutional convention wasn't that in Philadelphia, it was yeah. But they didn't get to call themselves the Constitution State?
3: Connecticut took it.
2: Oh, Connecticut got it? Oh, so my second guess, I got it. Okay. Yeah.
3: Oh, no, you were right. Connecticut. I thought you 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 just randomly guessed Connecticut?
2: Well, I said... Did you even say Connecticut? I said Pennsylvania first, and then you gave me the silence indicating no. So then I said Connecticut.
3: <laughs> right.
2: So, but so but you that was must kind have of a guess. I was is, just kind of is, moving around the area. <laughs>
3: My point is you you knew because you you had to have heard it, the Constitution State. I, I, I might have heard it because I lived yeah. in New England. But um, yeah, Connecticut, for some reason, I have no idea why, is called the Constitution State. OK, here's their question. We got two questions very, very similar to this, but we've already talked about this on the podcast. I'm hoping you have this answer. Well, I'm, you're not going to like my answer. To start with. Here's a quote from the American Society of Pension Professionals regarding Secure Act 2. Section 204 of the, limit of the legislation eliminates the penalty of partial annuitization such that if a tax-preferred retirement account also holds an annuity, the account owner will be permitted to to elect to aggregate distributions from both portions of the account for purposes of determining required minimum distribution. Right. This provision is effective on the date of enactment, mm-hmm. and the Treasury is directed to update the relevant regulations accordingly.
2: Yeah. <clears throat> and people took that and ran with it and hope it did more than yes. what that just stated, because what that stated is correct but you got to follow it very carefully and not read more into it than what's there.
3: And here's the difficulty and the pension actuary society or whatever it is that he said he got this from who's American society of pension professionals. They kind of put it in their writings folks. But if you understand what it's saying, two things, they're talking specifically about annuities held within the same account you have some of the account is an annuity and within the same account is some investments non-annuitized. That's the way the law is written. We don't know if that's the way the law will be interpreted. And that ties into the second part of what these pension professionals wrote that he is quoting. The Treasury Secretary is directed to update the relevant regulations accordingly. They haven't done that yet. Yeah. Nobody knows what they're going to do. And that was the takeaway at the Ed Slot group when I was there. He didn't even cover Section 204. So I went and asked him, not Ed personally. I got a hold of his minions. And I said, hey, nowhere in the book. i do not you, you referenced 204 in the back of the book. It's not in the front of the book. And their answer was, we don't know what they're going to do. The way it's written, though, folks, they're they're addressing you have an account. And within that account is an income annuity and non-annuitized assets. I'm hoping they will aggregate IRAs as one big one. Because you can't, you Vanguardians, have an IRA at Vanguard. Let's say you got a $2 million IRA at Vanguard. You've done some calculations. You need additional secure income to cover your minimum dignity floor. You, you believe in Chris and I's approach. You don't have to, but many people do, but not everyone. But you believe in our approach of saying, hey, I'm going to annuitize my shortage so the older me doesn't have to worry about the markets, isn't going to have to be worried about the economy, isn't going to have to try to do withdrawals. The money is just going to come to cover my food, utilities, transportation, housing, and health care. So let's just say out of your $2 million IRA, Chris, your calculation is I need to annuitize $500,000. I'm just making these numbers up, folks. You can't go to Vanguard and say take 500,000 of my 2 million IRA and buy this income annuity. This New York Life income annuity is the one I want, and I'm just again making up New York Life. If you want to buy an annuity at New York Life, you take half a million dollars from your Vanguard IRA, you move it to an IRA at New York Life and you direct them to put it in their income annuity. So that's my concern. The way it's written, it makes it sound like one account. And I think they did it that way because 401Ks under Secure 1 and greatly expanded in Secure 2 are allowed to hold an annuity inside the 401K. So Section 204, I feel was added to secure in an effort to encourage people to buy an annuity inside their 401k by saying, hey, we acknowledge this annuity is going to pay you more in lifetime income payments than the associated RMD." For your entire 401k, for the for the portion that's in the annuity, you're going to get more out of the annuity than you would be required to take out of your 401k if you didn't buy the annuity. That's the whole point of the annuity, folks. It's risk pooling, and you get, as long as you're alive, mortality credits, which is the money which would have went to everyone else who died before you. So by default, design the payments from an annuity is going to be higher than the rmd withdrawal amounts which is simply based on your life expectancy table and that of one other person 10 years younger than you you don't have the benefits of mortality credits so my gut tells me chris congress put section 204 in specifically to address that to say hey That annuity inside that account can be used to offset the RMD of that entire account. That's what I'm afraid it was put in for. It's just like you said, they've taken this bone and ran with it. And everybody is now thinking, I got this annuity in this IRA over here. I got this annuity over here. And they're hoping that it will all offset. We don't know. And we still don't know. And I don't know if they're going to hold the language to the letter, which specifically addresses that account. Mm-hmm. And again, we've talked about this before. We're, we're at a dead end. Trust me. Nobody wants to know this better than me. We believe in income annuities. We're not personally huge fans of withdrawal-based income annuities that are not annuitized. And because they're not annuitized, there is an account balance. And it's very easy to determine what the RMD from that account balance should be and whether or not the income benefit is higher or lower. And if there's any excess, you can use it to offset another IRA annuity. We recognize that, and it is very easy with those types of annuities. You don't even need Section 204 for a withdrawal-based income benefits called the living benefit rider. The reason Chris and I are not fans of those, those annuities generally carry outrageously high fees, and the income payments are significantly lower mm-hmm. than what you can get from a real annuity, an annuitized annuity. So nobody wants this solved more than me because I believe in real income annuities, the ones that never get sold because they don't pay hardly anything in a commission. Those withdrawal-based annuities pay the advisor every single year if the advisor chooses an annual payment or a massive commission right up front. And they don't have the income benefit like they used to years ago. 2007 eight and nine they had wonderful income benefits tied to those annuities today not so much so the point is i would love this to be solved and i would love it to be solved in our favor our meaning everybody listening to this not just chris and i and the firm but my gut tells me it's probably not going to be as beneficial as everyone is hoping
2: yeah I, i don't know yeah
3: okay and again, go ahead. You are ready to say oh, something.
2: Yeah, we're going to need to wrap here pretty quickly. So did that answer both of those? La- is there another question along the same lines, or do we need to tackle that at, on the next show?
3: Nope. I'm looking at both questions here, and I believe...
2: It's a pretty yeah, common I mean, question, because it's, it's got, yeah, like I said, it everybody a, got excited it a, they... Yeah, this.
3: it is a common question. So... Um, the, the, the gentleman, and I'm not going to read the email, the one who sent me the email on April 30th, you know who you are. Um, oh, he does have a state clue. So the one who said you live in the state of the original 13 colonies, in the state, out of the original 13, the only state that didn't border the Atlantic Ocean. Do you know that off the top of your head? Because you already said this state. Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania. The listener in Pennsylvania my answer just answered yours as well. So I'm not going to read the question and address it. My, my answer just answered your question as well. Okay, Chris, okay. you can wrap up.
2: Okay. Well, thanks, everybody, for sending in questions. Um, whether they're Secure Act related or or other, uh, we're happy to get them. Um, send in your email questions to Jim directly. Jim at jimhelps.com is the email address put in the subject line that it's a question for the podcast. That'll make sure it uh, uh, increases the chance it gets his attention. And uh, as you noticed, we always answer a question that came in very recently, so you've got a chance uh, that you could get your question answered right away. Um, not everyone's question gets answered. I'll put that out there. We try to answer as many as possible. Um, but if I bet if we haven't answered your specific question, uh, we'll answer shortly a question very closely related to it. Uh, although every once in a while we'll get a unique question. Those are the ones I really like. And and honestly, whenever we get a really unique question that comes in, that kind of gets elevated. So if you think you've got a question we haven't seen before, uh, those really excite us the most and uh, will greatly increase your chances of getting it addressed uh, sooner than later. So uh, if you think you've got a question we haven't tackled, we'd love to see that. But uh, keep on listening, and we'll be back with you next week with a brand new show.
1: You have listened to Jim on the radio, read his quotes in the media, and enjoyed his banter on iTunes. But even now, you may wonder what sets Jim Solmier and Associates apart from other financial planning companies. The answer is quite simple. Jim's diverse team of professionals specializes in retirement planning. They form a lifelong relationship with you and measure their success not through product sales, but through the security and prosperity you may achieve in your retirement. Jim's entire team shares his unwavering commitment to placing their clients' best interests first while offering their services at fair prices with full disclosures. The professionals at Jim Sonier and Associates are available to assist you with your retirement planning needs. Visit JimHelps.com to schedule your complimentary coffee and a second opinion meeting. That's Jim H E L P S dot com. Or call 970 530 0556
0: is offered through Jim Saulnier and Associates, LLC, a registered investment advisor.